it doesn't have to be like that. You can make a job rather than take a job. And I was pleasantly surprised how many people are out there that are willing to help and support you on that journey. I think family and family support and belief has been really important. Now, it's a not-so-secret secret that one of the least attractive places to invest in the people tech space is learning and development. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the space, well, you might be a little surprised, right? There's probably no part of the HR ecosystem that's more easily understood and declared to be absolutely critical to the success of an organization than learning and development, or L&D, as we people nerds like to call it. Who doesn't want their people to know more? And who doesn't believe that if they were able to invest in learning, that improve people's performance, the financial impact would be significant. But see, that last piece is the kicker. Does learning and development actually drive business performance? Trying to prove that correlation between L&D and business performance continues to be the bane of a lot of organizations' existence. And most leaders get so frustrated with this now that they've given up altogether. It's not that they don't believe in learning. It's just that they don't believe they could ever quantify the value. And as a business exec, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. So why try when there are lots of other things more defensible in their return on investment to go after? And because of that, the very thing that if you go into any organization today, I will bet you is on the top five priorities of what their executives want to invest in for the next year will typically be the least invested in part of their ecosystem. As if that wasn't enough, to insult to injury, in tough times, the L&D budget is inevitably the first thing to be cut. And all of this makes it a pretty precarious industry to play in if you're an entrepreneur. And for most people, that makes the game not worth playing. But Rajib Day, my guest today, is not a lot of people. Again and again, when faced with problems that other people have looked at and said, too big or too audacious, Rajib seems to ask, why not? Rajib is the founder and CEO of Learnably, an award-winning performance enablement platform that ensures employees have the necessary knowledge and skills to thrive by providing curated content from over 200 providers. Their secret sauce lies in their personal development plan and a unique approach to personalization and ownership within learning that actually makes learning stick. Before Learnably, Rajib founded Internships and then co-founded Startup Britain. He also serves as a trustee of Unlimited. And at the time he was recognized in 2012, he was the youngest ever member of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders cohort. Yep, that World Economic Forum. So Rajib's list of accolades might seem endless. This man is as humble as he is accomplished. And I absolutely loved delving into his mind. So without further ado, let's spend some time with Rajib, a true visionary inventor. What led you to take the leap into the unknown? Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, thanks for having me on this. This is great to reconnect. I started my entrepreneurship journey when I was 17. I started a social enterprise uh, called Student Voice, which is about giving school students 11 to 19 a voice in their education. I didn't necessarily set out to be an entrepreneur, but I felt that something needed to change. You know, I have this kind of philosophy of you know, scratch my own itch or you know, the Gandhi quote of be the change you wish to see in the world. And when I found out that other countries had this, I personally felt very comfortable speaking up if I didn't like something or if I, I had a good rapport with the teachers in school. And I felt it was my place to, you know, share what I thought about it. But a lot of my peers didn't think that was the case. And given you spend so many years at school 
it's a formative time of your life, I felt that, you know, the experience would be different. Uh, and so mm. I got a grant from a foundation called Unlimited, a £5,000 grant. And that really kickstarted my journey because that was the first moment I felt that somebody else believed in me and my idea. Had they not given me that grant, I don't know if I'd be sitting here today. I, d- I don't know. You don't know, obviously. But yeah. it was so powerful at the age of 17 for someone to put money in your account and say, I believe in you. Go and make this happen. And so just to kind of fast forward, I went into university, studied economics and management at university, and I was running the Entrepreneur Society at Oxford. And that's where the idea of my second venture came up, which was called Internship. So it's that mm-hmm. entrepreneurial internship to connect students into startup SMEs. I found that aspiring bankers, lawyers, and accountants would all do internships. But what could an aspiring entrepreneur do other than start their own business? The best way to learn about this enterprise is to work in a startup. But by time I was at university, 2004, 2008, there really wasn't the culture, at least in the UK, of working in a startup or being an entrepreneur. And so, again, it was a case of like, why is that? I want myself and my peers to know that there's another world out there outside of banking, law, consulting, the typical careers you see on, on campus. And then when I graduated in 2008, I wanted to do something positive to help my peers find employment. And so started that as a business. And then the third venture was Startup Britain, which was an initiative three months after President Obama had launched Startup America. Myself and a few other entrepreneurs connected with the British government and the prime minister. And we launched a national campaign to promote entrepreneurship here in the UK in 2010. Again, all of these things that were not necessarily intentional, but there was more through lived mm. experience and frustration of me wanting to do something different and do something to improve the world around me. And finally, you know, led on to Learnably, having helped thousands of companies through internships, hire great talent, person then becomes how do you develop them, how do you retain them? And more generally in a world where skills are ever changing and you're having to completely upskill and reskill, there's no quality control in professional development. So the question became for me, I want to know what I should do. I have a good community mm. of other founders to turn to. But if you're in marketing or a junior salesperson in a company, who do you turn to to know what to do? You, you Google it. And so this idea of this curated marketplace of learning opportunities came up learnably. But you see the, the common thread in all of that is what I like to see is about opportunities. There's given people opportunities, but it's also yeah. through my own experiences my, and experiencing that kind of a pain point and thinking that something can be different and could be different that I went ahead and started something. It was all kind of very much organic. I love that. Look, I, particularly coming from the investment side now, love a good model. Love a good, <laughs> love a good strategic marketplace, right? The number of kind of startup pitch decks I've now walked through at this place, you know, the kickoff with like, here's the market and here's the problem, which obviously is part in, in assessing this. But I think there's something that is really true that the most successful, certainly startups here as I've met, feel the problem they're solving viscerally. They're not solving it primarily because they saw a report, you know, published by the World Economic Forum or the latest article in Wall Street Journal and saw an opportunity. That That is a certain model for it. But I think particularly the kind of scrappiness that it takes for you to do something at 17 with 5,000 pounds, which, you know, at 17, I'm sure that felt like a lot of money, but I'm sure yeah, you can appreciate now, so to speak, in terms of pulling something together, like that requires a deeper connection to both, I think, the problem and your vision world. And one of the things I am struck by as I, I then reflect on, on ways that you continue to do this, right, to, to see your world, experience it, identify problems and move forward is I'm struck by this deep agency, this sense that one, it should be better and we can do something about it. You know, I look around and 
I had a lot of agency and a bunch of people didn't. And my first question is, oh, why not? Or, mm -hmm. hey, okay, Obama starts Startup America. And I'm like, well, why don't we have Startup Britain? This is a bit of a difficult question, but have you always been that way? Or are there some formative childhood memories, especially as I think a lot of artists are like, do I have what it takes to be an entrepreneur? Do you view that as just an innate Rajib quality? Or are there some early memories or people who you think gave you that sense of agency in your world? I think family and family support and belief has been really important. You know, my parents and, and my sister as well, who just kind of ultimately they've always been about do your best and do good in the world. And that's what, what's important. But you know, they're not from a business background. My dad's a doctor. My mum was a teacher before working with him in his surgeries. And my sister's a doctor. So they're not necessarily entrepreneurs, but this whole world mm -hmm. is alien to them. They support me unconditionally. It has been really, really important. You know, as a child growing up, I was quite stubborn. You know, I would be curious. So I would take things apart just to look yeah. inside and then put it back together so it would work again. But I'd have that kind of mischievous curiosity of like wanting to know how things work. And, you know, that could be quite annoying, but it was kind of, you know, very much part of my character. And then I would say that putting myself out there. So at 17, I connected to, I got involved with the local youth council. So I did some youth advocacy work. Through yeah. that, I got in touch with Unlimited, who gave me that £5,000 grant. When you get involved in one thing, one thing leads to another. And I think what I learned from that is being open to opportunities and saying yes and mm. embracing them. Because when, once you go down a path, more things come your way. So then what happened was at such a young age, you get that money and then I started getting national media coverage at that point. Like I was on like in mainstream newspapers, I was speaking at party political conferences. That was exciting, overwhelming, but it also gave me a huge amount of confidence. Age should not be a barrier to achieving stuff. And I think that became a virtuous cycle afterwards. And I was pleasantly surprised how many people are out there that are willing to help and support you on that journey. Ask for help or you put yourself out there people will be there to support you. And I think some a misconception a lot of people have, particularly entrepreneurs early on, is they get very possessive over their idea. The more people you share with, the more people can potentially help you. Oh, I absolutely love that. And you know, one thing that also feels like it's been really key to how you've partnered is not just the sheer volume people, it feels like you've allowed to be part of this story, but the breadth of institutions, right? Like the public, private, it's one of the first things I noticed. You talk about your youth councils, you talk about, you know, the grant from Unlimited, and, you know, then you're obviously deeply connected then in our more traditional VC ecosystems. But I do think actually one thing that happens in places that aren't as large as Silicon Valley in terms of the tech ecosystem is there's a great acknowledgement of the broader infrastructure at play involved in entrepreneurship and supporting innovation. And actually that some of these other tools might not have, let's say, the ability to write as big a check as you're in Jason Horowitz, but they're also then much more connected to things like the media, right? Like you're not paying for PR when you're working at this at 17, doing this in the same way that automatically comes. And, but taking pull back, do you think that that was something that is pretty unique to the path that you took or something that tends to be more true of entrepreneurship in a place like the UK versus in a place like Silicon Valley in the US? It's a, a variety of things. So firstly, yes, yeah. the UK market is, is kind of smaller. So therefore, it's potentially easier to make a bigger splash. When I started doing this back when I was 17, Back then, there just weren't as many people starting ventures. It was out of the ordinary to kind of yeah. do this. Therefore, it was easier to stand out. I would say the ecosystem has evolved massively. And partly, I would say I've played 
a role in developing that ecosystem so that there are mm. far more people starting businesses, far more entrepreneurs, and therefore it would probably be harder for you to stand out now in the UK market yeah. because there are more people doing it. There's more noise. I typically go against the grain. The reason mm. internships stood out was because most university students would look, aspire to get a job at Goldman Sachs or to like mm-hmm. you know, a big, big blue chip yes. company. And my whole narrative was, it doesn't have to be like that. You can make a job rather than take a job. If you can connect your purpose and mission to a broader story and what's going on, it will get attention. Policy changes then happened after you know the work that we kind of did. And partly it's about creating that ecosystem. And I've been very passionate about that from the outset, which is to create yeah. a fertile environment because ultimately a lot of my friends and peers, they did leave the UK to go to the US to start their business because their lives were easier, you know, raising money, yeah. connecting to more people out there. I just wanted to be able to do something where that's not the only path to success and I could do something to kind of really boost the ecosystem, I suppose, around me. As you think about now running an organization that is really thinking about performance enablement and measuring the quality of professional development, what steps have you taken to build a culture of performance enablement right at Learnably itself, even as you use your organization and platform to do that with the world? I think it starts with our values. So we have four values as a company. The first one is always grow. So that one's very much mm-hmm. about radical candor and feedback, about how you're constantly curious, learning and sharing that learning with other people. The second yeah. one is around what include intentionally, you know, DEIB, making sure that we default to trust, you bring your authentic self to work. We have we foster psychological safety where people can speak up and we do really make sure that we have diverse voices in the room. The third one is around creating impact. They're connected in a way to always grow, be bold, experiment, prioritize, but work mm. sustainably. So it's not about burning out. It's about really being ruthless with how you prioritize and work efficiently in order to create impact. And the fourth mm. is winning together, having that accountability for your actions, but to make sure you support your colleagues. It is not about, you know, a dog eat dog. You know, I'm just going to try and smash my OKRs at the detriment of everyone else. It's about working mm. collaboratively and then celebrating wins as a team. There are a number of things that we do, but I think it fundamentally goes down to the values, the core values of the business. Most core business, great decision making anyway, does start with values. And yet I think there's a huge difference between kind of what are the four or five things that we happen to print on our onboarding document? And then like, how do we actually live and make decisions as an organization? Can you think of any examples where you as an organization have made a tough business decision in order to live in line with your rules. It's something, the way it kind of shows up for us is from our interview process, first and foremost, we will have a value stage there where it's something that we kind of test for. We don't look for cultural fit, but we look for cultural contribution. So Mm -hmm. how will you contribute to kind of elevating the culture in the business and how do you demonstrate those particular values? So I think winning together, I think, is, is an important one because similarly, like kind of a no assholes kind of rule, like that's yeah. quite a low ego company, I would say. And so it's not about having a superstar person who just will trample on everyone else. And that's not a behavior that we would welcome, even if you are a star performer. It has to, you know, mm. it's, it's like, what is your impact on the rest of the company? I don't think I can recall 
a situation where we've kind of been at an impasse of like, we could do this or could do that and our values yeah. would drive a certain rate. And that might be because generally the way we kind of operate, I would, I would say companies are very good at living its values. We are open to feedback and internal constructive feedback and criticism as well, because as any company, we don't get everything right. We are continuously kind of surveying our, our colleagues, finding out their perspectives and how we can improve. So by no means am I saying we've, we've cracked it, we're kind of perfect, yeah. but we do our best. Do you have a recent example of a story of someone living out those values that surprised you or makes you feel a little proud? Unbeknown to me, the marketing team decided to email all of our users and said, we're on D2, love you to leave a review of what you think. I didn't know they were doing that because I think had they had asked me, I might have said, "Um, why don't we handpick? certain people, but actually in the spirit of creating impact and being bold, they just went for it. Yeah. And that's exactly right. Yeah. And and I was overwhelmed with how positive the feedback was. And it really, really paid off. The bold, some might call it short-sightedness, others call yeah. it boldness. I think like the two always are, are actually I think, two sides of the same coin. Wonderful that it worked out, but I think even more so that you can look back and kind of feel proud of kind of who you are and, and where you stand in the marketplace. How do you think about customer relevance and how you balance the needs across your different user base? You know, getting being able to get to 4.4 across your user base tells me not just about how generally good you are, but that you figured out something about that balance across the board. What does that look like for you guys? And how do you keep your eye on that ball? We're quite focused in terms of our ideal customer profile. So typically knowledge workers is the kind of audience that we'll be working yep. with. And then within that, I'd say 80%, 80 to 90% of our clients are probably tech businesses, but obviously within tech companies, you have a whole range of business functions. So we've had to make sure that our product meets the needs of all of the functions that operate within typically a tech business. And ironically, engineering and product are typically the most demanding departments of a company. And that's probably where we excel the most. We get the best Mm. feedback from engineers and product managers and product teams and designers. What's good about how we operate is that there's a virtuous cycle we launched with King.com in gaming. That was a new vertical for us. They're obviously a tech company, but we didn't necessarily yeah. have gaming specific content. We worked very collaboratively with our clients and we worked with King to actually identify what's the kind of content that they would find useful, who are the providers they've already worked with in the past, and we added them to the platform. And now we have like five or six major gaming brands on our platform. And every time mm. it's a virtual circle because they then introduce new people that are mm. they people as well. And so that improves the whole ecosystem and marketplace for everyone else. They're really fortunate having worked with over 200 companies, like super progressive companies, that we're able to collaborate with them to make sure that the content we've got is great. And then obviously there's the AI and machine learning features within the platform, which is looking at based on who you are, the job that you do, what are other people like you learning to make better recommendations. We could go down that path for for the rest of the interview. I'm going to like hold myself there. What do you find tends to matter for a department that is more like legal or an HR function that isn't like HR specifics, but more like learning and development, et cetera, when it comes to both assessing the quality of learning or even thinking through what playlists might feel more relevant for their people? And are there any kind of 
lessons gleaned that, that those organizations that I think also always recognize the value of learning, but perhaps feel a bit more adrift when it comes to how on earth are we going to figure out how to incorporate this, evaluate this, et cetera, into our program? Like what, what works? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's two things I would say. Firstly, we have a lot of social features built in where you can mm. um, you can rate and review content. So colleagues and themselves can leave yeah. reviews. So it's like an extra layer of curation over and above an Amazon review for a book. So you will see reviews left by employees working at you know hundreds of other companies. The second thing that we have is the ability for anyone in your organization to curate a playlist. So I think often there's a misconception that HR have to do everything. You might have subject matter expert on some very niche topic, but no one's ever approached them or asked them to share that insight with anyone. So by actually yeah. democratizing that access and giving everyone the ability to curate their own playlist, and you can either make those yeah. playlists private, so it's just for you, or public, that's so available in the organization. So you can share that expertise with other people. It's important to recognize that, and it's impossible for an L&D person to have subject matter yeah. expertise and functional expertise in all of the areas of your business. And so it's an impossible job. Therefore, the more you can lean on the internal subject matter experts in your business, the better. Now pulling back out, getting very meta market driven, the skills landscape has massively transformed. I, I know the things that we're talking about, at some level, we've been talking about the same pie in the sky things for a very long time, but they finally kind of feel like they're truly at our doorstep and technology can kind of be almost deliver. I'm curious from your perspective as somebody who's also been in the skills landscape and actually from a lot of different angles, probably more diverse than me. How do you see the landscape evolving over the next coming years? And how is Learnably preparing to take advantage of these changes? Yeah, I think it's fascinating that we've really seen acceleration to everyone is talking about skills now. Everyone is trying to become a skills-based mm. organization, talking about the need for internal mobility. You know, retention and growth, employee growth is really a high priority for businesses. And also recognizing that you know, we're in an era where you can't, you know, in the past, it was just about an acquisition, and now it's about talent activation. Yeah. So it's about how do you mm -hmm. make the most of the people you've got. And in order to make the most of them, you need to make sure they're engaged. They've got the skills they need to thrive and that they can upskill and reskill them as you need rather than just hiring externally to fill the gaps you've got in the organization. We're kind of rebasing all of our content around skills. So previously it was around hmm. topic areas. So it'd be functional yeah. specific and like job role specific. And now we're going through an exercise over the coming months of just rebasing everything around core skills uh, to make sure we hmm. can far more prescriptive around this particular resource will help you gain these three skills and make more personalized recommendations on that. And I think no one can escape from the impact of AI roles and how it's going to massively change all of our roles and, and our jobs. And I think if anything, yeah. that is really heightens the need for that continuous development and making sure that someone like you can use something like Learnerby to keep abreast of those changes. On that theme of preparing for the future and, and where you go and, and what's changing and what's not, if you kind of look back five years ago, what about the learning, the skills landscape as it looks like today is exactly as you predicted it would be? And is there something that is fundamentally different than what you expected it to be? And maybe giving us a bit of a precursor on, on what we can expect to be true and, and where we can expect to be surprised. I think what surprised me, well, firstly, things happened over the five years covid kind of changed things massively like how we operate yeah. the shift to remote and hybrid kind of changes massively but what i found most interesting and most surprising 
now is things like ChatGPT and all the OpenAI work is that this shows you this is not about automation of what used to be seen as blue collar jobs. Five years ago, mm. when people talked about future of work, they mainly thought, okay, it's people working in factories and there's going to be robots and there's going to come and it's going to change the job. Now, when you've got ChatGPT on your phone and you realize it's actually going to fundamentally change knowledge workers and their roles, that becomes a wake up call for everybody. And it's like, okay, everybody needs to evolve, not just some people over here. It's mm. going to impact us all. That also provides an opportunity for people to get ahead of the curve and think about how will this impact my role. And knowing that we're just at the beginning of that, we're literally scratching the surface of what's to come. You know, all this kind of yeah. generative image kind of stuff is coming out now. It's like going to impact yeah. marketing, it's going to impact kind of creative industries, even sales, how you do prospecting, everything is going to change. And I think that's probably yeah. what caught me personally by surprise is how quickly in the last six months this has come out. And then the rapid rate, you know, Meta have now come out with their own version and people are filing that for free. Yeah. So I think the thing to watch is like kind of how quickly does this change? Like it, it also depends how quickly people evolve and embrace this. Because some companies are like, yeah, do whatever. There's all sorts of like legal complexities around it. And some are like super scared and just shutting it down. So Gen AI's vision has definitely not felt like a top-down thing. I, I, I see, I hear policy being thrown out, but it feels a little like, you know, teeth in the US, like when we hear policy around crypto or whatever coming out of Congress, when it's like, you're talking about the things people were talking about 10 years ago. And so the, the sense that this is being not just embraced, but driven by the workforce it's affecting versus being pushed on, I would not have predicted. And that for me just creates all kinds of interesting opportunities with how does that affect where it goes when it is not solely used as a tool driven by the top down to drive the bottom line. Time will tell. There are a couple of really cool accolades that you have associated with your name that like seem to come up every time I'm, I'm, I'm talking about or Googling about Rajiv. And one of them is that you were recognized as one of the youngest young global leaders um, by the World Economic Forum. Um, that is an exceptional achievement. I know one or two other people who've achieved it, but for those of folks who don't know what that is, one, what is that recognition? What does it signify? And how, if at all, has it actually influenced your own entrepreneurial journey or approach to leadership since you won it? Yeah, so, so the World Economic Forum is probably best known for a conference they have in January called Davos, where basically the yeah. world leaders, prime ministers, business people, um, celebrities, everyone kind of descends on this tiny little town yeah. in, in Switzerland called Davos. They have a community called Young Global Leaders, which recognizes achievements from people who are aged 40 and below, who have kind of had an exceptional contribution in, in various fields of life. I was 26 when I became a YGL. So for me, and I think, you know, partly I started my journey super young, right? So by that point, I'd already yeah. had nine years. I started when I was 17. It was very humbling. I think it was awe-inspiring being in the presence of people who are typically a lot older than me. And the other thing is you also connect to the alumni of the organization. So you've got former politicians, you've got people like Will I Am, who's young global leader, you've got like celebrities, yeah. musicians, you know, people. So it's really inspiring to be around these people and be in the same community. And what's amazing is that everyone is so giving, so supportive. It's a global community. So inspirational to be exposed to leaders in various different fields from like not-for-profit to like political leaders and creative leaders. Like that's super inspiring. It's the most yeah. diverse community I'm part of. Whether it was an idea that was sparked or a way of operating that you've taken back that you're, that's something about having such a global kind of world stage 
experience so early on you think has affected the way that you approach leadership at your company, in your community, maybe even of yourself? You know, I think it's more the opportunities I've had to just connect. So they have this Harvard module where it's a two-week course that, that is paid for by the by, by sponsor of the forum. And you, I think it's about 40 people that every year get to do it. And it's the connections and bonds you make to reflect on your own leadership style, your own journey, to hear other people's stories. Mm. I've never really, you know, so called had a proper job. I've never really properly had a manager. I've always had to make it up as I go along. And so that's why I love being in communities of other founders or other leaders in different fields, just to learn about their own journey because I don't have yeah. a blueprint to follow. Awesome. Well, well, thank you, Rajiv. We've had a very like far-reaching conversation, like starting right back from being 17, um, kicking things off all the way to to 36 with kind of the, the big global organization that Learnably is today. Is there a question I haven't asked you that I should have in order to glean one last piece of wisdom that you'd love to share with our audience? I was just reflecting that I'm clearly stuck in a time warp because I'm actually 37. I don't know why I said I was 36. So I think I need to set the record straight before, before someone, before someone yeah. says, why is he lying about his age? Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for the time. And like you said, it, it, is, it is a busy job with a lot to do. And I'm so grateful for you sharing your time with us today and, and just the candor which you share. Thank you for living out one of those that learnably um, value with us as well. It was Michael Jordan who said, talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence win championships. Now, Rajib may be a talent to contend with, but it's really the teamwork of all the people who make Learnably that is responsible for its success. And if you're a regular listener to Venture Visionaries, you know we don't like to close without our Spoken Stories segment, sponsored by Spoken a moment where we get to hear from the people who make up the team that actually gets the work done. And I had one simple question for the folks at Learnably. What makes working there so unique? Here's what they had to say. What makes learning at Learnably so unique is we really do practice what we preach. We're given unlimited learning leave, which you can book and book a morning off so that you can go and study um, an area that you're keen to develop and we're given plbs to spend on our platform and buy the resources we need so um yeah it's it's allowed me a lot of time to to spend learning and developing the thing that i'd say is most unique about working at learnably is the option that we have to choose the right learning for us we're provided with a personal learning budget and we are then trusted to choose the learning that's right for us. This means that we can um, choose not only our preferred learning resources, but also it caters to a range of different learning styles. So we can choose the right resources that are best for our professionals. Working alarmably is unique because my work is not defined or limited by my job title. Learnerbees are encouraged to learn and grow at every opportunity. And so I've had the chance to develop skills in business areas that I never thought I would have exposure to. My colleagues are always willing to share knowledge so that we can win together. We are also given the autonomy to deliver in the best way that we see fit, being trusted to use our intuition to achieve results. One of our four company values is always grow. And I see this embodied by my colleagues across the organisation. 
we regularly collaborate with each other to develop our skills and knowledge. For example, we pair together on work, we teach each other new tools and we share our learning moments. In addition to a generous learning budget and unlimited learning leave, it's this collaborative learning culture where I'm continuously learning, sharing and teaching with my peers that makes Learnably unique. What makes working at Learnably unique? Well, for me, it's simple. It's the opportunity to work on a really compelling domain. How do we help people to succeed and get the most out of themselves in the workplace? And it's a problem that's as old as humankind itself and that demands inventive solutions. Working at Learnably offers the opportunity to work with really talented people every day to find new ways to use technology to collaborate and to make amazing things happen for people in the workplace. And that is such a fun thing to do. Hello, I'm Catherine, Learnably's Chief Technology Officer. And one of the things that I think makes Learnably a unique place to work is just how supportive everybody is of each other. Um, we see this in people celebrating each other's achievements, whether that's huge, like passing professional exams or, you know, small, like maybe a, a pet's birthday. Um, and we see it when someone needs help. Many people really like quickly volunteer their time, even though everybody is really busy. And this support creates a real feeling of safety and people can really open up about areas they'd like to improve on, development needs. And then that really helps everybody grow. And that's it for this time, listeners, wherever you are in the world and whatever it is you happen to be doing while you listen to this podcast. I hope you know just how much I appreciate your time. And I hope you're leaving today just a little bit more inspired to follow your dreams and see where they might take you. Until next time, this is Venture Visionaries, and I'm Thomas. Thomas.